the mystery is really more about the reader trying to figure out what's going on. So I like to say that my mysteries are less whodunit and more what the fuck is going on. So it's, there are clues, there are pieces, there's plot pieces, there's character pieces here that once you read through it, you might not have noticed them before, but when you go back through it and catch a lot of the clues, you can figure out, sort of figure out where the plot is going. Because these guys aren't detectives. They're not actual, they're not in any way able to solve a real mystery. And I want the audience to be in the same shoes as the characters. What's going on? Why is this happening? Why is this so irritating? And then eventually, as you slowly go through the book and try and piece things together, it sort of resolves itself. Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with author GM Nair. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Hello. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having me. me. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'd love to love to chat. And uh, so I, we were just talking before we went live about kind of questions that I had for you. And so I did some deep digging and all the scandals. I'm I'm caught up on all the scandals. But OK, great. That's 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 really most of my my what's relevant about me is the the terrible, terrible scandals that I've perpetrated across my life. <laughs> So the, the first question I have for you, which is the question you posted is, who do you think you are? <laughs> oh, I didn't think you were actually going to use the questions that I posed. All right, great. Oh, that's, that's so let's, <laughs> let's go with this. Uh, yeah, no, I guess the um, I guess the questions I posted was, uh, who do I think I am and what gives me the right? Uh, <laughs> who do I think I am? Uh, I'm a 34-year-old Indian-American author who writes silly books for fun and limited profit uh, while simultaneously juggling a job as an aviation consultant in New York City. I'm not really a person that you should be taking seriously. Uh, so take all of my answers to all of your questions with a grain of salt. Right on. Or if you have a salt mine, that will probably be even, even better because you're going to need a lot of it. And the uh, your your series is uh, the Duckett and, and Dyer. Uh, am I pronounced that right? Duckett and Dyer. Yes, Duckett and Dyer, Dicks for Hire. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your about your series. What is what's the series about? Okay. Well, I have copyright here because why not plug uh, visually, uh, or at least I guess for the viewers, if you guys are just listening to the audio, you're missing out on some quality cover art. Uh, but this is this is my series, Duckett and Dyer, Dicks for Hire. It's a sort of sci-fi mystery comedy series, which is, you know, the the most profitable niche of all those three genres just mixed together. Um it follows two uh best friends who are kinda, you know, on the outs, having grown up together and kind of lost patience with each other. Uh, when they find out someone's posting up ads for their detective agency that they obviously do not have and this leads them through you know the chaos of not only solving this mystery of who's telling people that they're detectives but also some sort of bigger machinations that involve not only themselves but all different versions of themselves across the multiverse hmm. <laughs> so it's 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 a lot it's it's a lot <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, so that leads into one of the questions that uh, that Brianna left for us, which was, "How do you how do you manipulate humor? What's what's your method of transferring humor through text?" So there's there's a lot of ways to do it, uh, but I think humor just comes pretty naturally to me, for better or for worse. It's gotten me into a lot of trouble, but. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I just think of that as being an easier way to communicate. So it probably because of my upbringing, you know, under a relatively strict Indian household where you had to, you know, sort of uh, follow the rules at all times uh, or else, you know, dire consequences. But um, I found humor as a nice 
sort of innocent rebellion. So always taking, you know, whatever comes at you and spinning it back in some sort of weird or unforeseen way that can usually garner a laugh or garner some, you know, garner an emotion sometimes. So I try to infuse my books not only with that in terms of like quick one-liners or anything like that, but also try and keep the reader, you know, constantly guessing and on their toes, which is, you know, maybe questionable if you're trying to enjoy a, a straight narrative, but I try to, you know, twist the plot and everything in unexpected ways that should, if I'm doing my work correctly, shock people into uncomfortable laughter. So it's it, it's a bit of a balance of just telling jokes and making and throwing people into unexpected places because that's what to me humor is it's it's subverting expectations in in the either the weirdest or the funniest way i think a lot of a lot of humor is timing you have to have the right timing for humor to make it to make it land are there methods that you use to make that timing in in your writing so yeah that's i mean that that reminds me of that that old joke um Ask me what the uh, secret to comedy is. What's the secret to comedy? T timing. It's timing. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to do timing in text because everybody reads at a different pace or mm. everybody, you know, might not parse everything exactly the same way. So writing comedy is is a little harder than, you know, if you were to watch it on TV. And I guess that's probably why um, comedy books aren't really all that plentiful nowadays or really much at all, um, at least in terms of, you know, kind of standard joke, pun set up punchline comedy. But I try to reread my books and jokes as much as possible. And if they still make me laugh, I keep them in there because hopefully the timing will get ironed out. And I try to make sure that the way I structure the dialogue and balance it with the narration, there's enough of a pause in between your setup or punchline or witty one-liner that maybe, maybe everybody else will get it too. Do you have people in your life that you bounce ideas off of or kind of test that timing or those jokes or the humor on? So I have I have a couple of friends who, while they don't have the exact same sense of humor, some of them do, some of them don't, but they are they're useful sounding boards to say, hey, does this joke work or is this dumb or is this joke something I really should not put in out into the universe? Because sometimes I can be uh, I can be too much in the service of comedy and less in the service of, oh, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> so uh, I'm not trying to get canceled, but one day I'm sure I'm going to say something that will uh, that'll that'll cross the line. <laughs> you just kind of <laughs> you're just waiting for that day to come, huh? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> if anybody wants to try and cancel me, please. There's, there's, I'm sure there's. There's lots of stuff that I've let slip by accident in, in these books. I think most funny people find themselves in some kind of uncomfortable situation from time to time. I think that just comes with the territory. Yeah, no, it it definitely it uh, it definitely does. But if you can see the humor in it, you can make it uh, not uncomfortable. If you make uh, you can make any awkward situation comfortable again. At least that's how I see. You know humor allows me some sort of control in my life <laughs> which i think we're all seeking on a day-to-day -day basis nowadays yeah humor is very important now and it keeps us keeps us from going insane i think yeah. so it's very useful uh so in addition to being to humor you also have mystery in your books too and keeping readers guessing is tough because readers know a lot of the tricks that you're going to try and, and use what mm -hmm. tricks do you use to keep readers like me guessing? So I guess to to call it, it's a mystery in, in, in name only, basically. But the mystery is really more about the reader. 
trying to figure out what's going on. So I like to say that my mysteries are less who done it and more what the fuck is going on. So it's there are clues, there are pieces, there's plot pieces, there's character pieces here that once you read through it, you might not have noticed them before, but when you go back through it and catch a lot of the clues, you can figure out, sort of figure out where the plot is going. Because these guys aren't detectives. They're not actual, they're not in any way able to solve a real mystery. And I want the audience to be in the same shoes as the characters. What's going on? Why is this happening? Why is this so irritating? And then eventually, as you slowly go through the book and try and piece things together, it sort of resolves itself, hopefully. Uh, and I try and also leave, you know, dangling strings and dangling clues for future books in the series before they all hopefully wrap up by the end. Uh, how many books do you plan for the series? Do you have a, a plan for that? Current, it was, it's been a waffling number. Uh, originally, it was going to be nine books which um, the more and more that I think about it, while I would enjoy to write all nine books, I think the character arcs and some of the, the emotional beats are probably going to make it have to shrink to about six books. Hmm. I have ideas for nine books, but I think six books is two trilogies, nice and tight. Maybe, uh, maybe an extra bonus book in there. Um, I was planning to do a, uh, in the same vein as all the other ridiculous stuff I write, a choose your own adventure. Um, although I can't really say that I think they're, I think the choose your own adventure people are very litigious about their trademark. So I think I'm going with solve your own damn mystery and I'm going to trademark that just to, just to, you know, stick it to them. Cause I can, why not? I miss those. I miss those books. Uh, yeah, that sounds like fun. I like that idea. <laughs> they're still around, and they're still suing people over the trademark. So, really, yeah. Hmm. So I'm sure you can pick some up. Oh yeah, <laughs> I haven't I haven't picked one up for quite a while, but yeah. I didn't know they were still around. I thought that was a that was a long dead format, hey. but yeah, yeah. Maybe. No, but they're they're still out there. Uh, I know a lot of other indie authors do their own sort of choose your own adventure stuff too which is also really cool yes. where did the inspiration for the characters come from before you started writing this series oh well that's the great question the the earliest genesis of this series goes back to uh i want to say 2007 ish so mm -hmm. quite a while ago which um i i was doing an internship out in seattle and i had a I had a uh, boss who was named uh, Michael Dyer. Uh, and he was kind of a quirky fellow, very a little bit nerdy. And I say that in the, with the most love possible because um, I'm, I'm a bit nerdy too. And I was like, he's an interesting character. What if, what would happen if he was sort of some sort of detective and he had to investigate weird stuff going on all around the city. Um, and so uh, that, thought marinated in my head for a little bit uh eventually i was like okay if he's weird and incompetent that's great but if we're following him we're going we're going to need an audience surrogate because you can't be in the head of this uh this person who takes nothing seriously 100 percent of the time so i figured we should have a foil uh a partner so i split the character into two uh, one very anxious person, one very devil-may-care person. And I came up with the title, Ducket and Dyer, Dicks for Hire. Because it basically writes itself, right? But um, so I was like, oh, this is great. This is a great title. This is a great concept. I should do something with it. So then, it t then about seven to ten years later, I actually start writing a book about it. <laughs> uh, originally, I was thinking about doing it as a, as a webcomic and something like that but then I got too lazy and college got in the way and grad school and when I finally got back to it it was like 2015 2016 uh and I decided to write a book because that given you know the proliferation of self-publishing it was it had the least barriers to entry and I am the laziest person imaginable so I went with that 
Um, and so I started Duckett and Dyer Dick's Briar, and it started off as a one-off book, and as I thought more about the weird, crazy stuff they could get into, it sort of just ballooned out into a full series. Hmm. So when did you start writing, or when did you seriously start writing? I would say about 2015, 2016. So it took me about four years from the initial dra rough draft to the final draft that I put out into the world. And then it took me just another year for the sequel, uh, the 100% solution. But that launched, you know, right as right around March 2020 when people were distracted with something else. Um, so... Uh, and uh, the subsequent months and years of distraction, which have pushed, you know, the third book out, uh, third book in the series out until hopefully, I'm hoping to get it out next month. Hmm. Oh, wow. The Mystery of the Murdered Guy, which is probably hmm. my favorite title in the series. <laughs> the Mystery of the Murdered Guy. That's a great title. It's, I'm very proud of it. Yeah. As you should be. That's a great title. Uh, so uh, what do you enjoy about the creative process? I just find it very freeing because, and Duck and Dyer is probably, uh, probably if you read it, you can see how freeing it can be because I, I've read reviews and they're 100% com completely on point with their statement when they say, he just threw a bunch of crap at the wall and saw what stuck. And that's correct. Uh, I, I've tried to make it as loose and as dynamic as possible. So there's something in there from every genre I like. Fantasy, mystery, sci-fi, and all the tropes that are inherent in all of those genres taken in there and twisted in different ways. So, yeah, it, I think the creative process is incredibly freeing and enjoyable. I love building these worlds and having them make sense and putting these characters through their paces trying to deal with all, all of this crap. And you said you self-publishing was one of the reasons you pursued writing the book because there's a there's, the barrier for entry is, is less than obviously traditional publishing. Yes. What surprised you about that process of publishing the books? Honestly, the amount of control I had self-publishing was fantastic. I did try traditional publishing. I submitted the the manuscript to several several agents, but you know, it's such a niche category and comedy does not sell and um at least according to them and I'd have to agree with them. But uh it's also a hard, uh, hard genre to market, but I felt like I had something there that, you know, I enjoyed and was the first piece of work that I actually, that I wrote that I actually liked rereading. Uh, usually when I write something and I put it away for two weeks and come back to it, I'm like, this is trash. Throw it away, burn it, nuke it from orbit if you have to. I don't want to see it again. This is embarrassing, but this was the first time I actually, you know, actually laughed again at some of my jokes. And I was like, this is, this is all right. This is not bad. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be beat yourself up about it. You should put it out there. And so I was like, all right, why not? Why, why not put it out there? Um, if I can. And I did. So, and I, the process was relatively quick as long as you know how to format everything and, uh, get i was lucky enough to have a friend who's a very good artist for the cover who pretty much listened to all the ideas i had and turned them into something really pretty cool to look at um and just this, this again like this the amount of control because there's a lot of the front matter i put in this book like the front matter you would see in in any book the whole uh copyright page all events in this book are fictional that kind of stuff the isbn number all of that stuff and if you open it and you actually this is something nobody would really look twice at on a normal book 
But if you open my book and you really look at it and you really read it, all of those are jokes. Everything, all the text in that uh, copyright page is a joke. And I don't think I would have gotten away with it if I had tried to publish this book. And sometimes those kinds of little things, you know, they're just for me, mostly. But it makes me happy. And sometimes when people see it, they're like, okay, this is this is pretty funny. They know what they're in for once they get past the copyright page, which is not something I us- uh, you can usually say about uh, traditionally published books. No, sure. Not, not at all. Um, so in addition to writing, you're also a, a judge. You're a judge for Spiffbo, is that correct? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, I'm on the team for Before We Go blog, where I also write a bunch of reviews. Yeah. And what did you learn about yourself and your writing during that process of being a judge? That's, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think I can be more objective than all, uh, some other judges, but I try to look for the good in absolutely every book that I read. Um, and I think that comes through in my writing. I try to, at least, when I'm editing, I try to, I try to be a little generous with myself, even if it's, uh, even if things are a little weird or a little off kilter. I don't know if that's a good thing in my writing or not, but uh, I, it's it's been very helpful as a judge to really evaluate these books on on their merits, even if there are certain parts of the books that I that don't quite touch me in ways that they uh, they're intending to. I can see. I like to see the intent behind the words and if the intent behind the words is good and honest and well-crafted, the sometimes if the book isn't really for me, it's still worthy of a, of, of a, of a great review or sometimes even if a book is for me, uh, sometimes the execution isn't as good as it should be. So it's, I try to keep myself, thinking about how I would write these things and whether or not, you know, the, the process makes sense uh, or, or am I being as fair to these books as I would writing my books or reading my own books. Are there any things that you picked up being a judge that you implemented in your own writing? Uh, so far, not yet because I'm still, uh, I've, I've only written a couple of reviews over the past year for, for Spiffbo, but it's, it's made me re cause Duckett and Dyer, Dix for Hire is actually uh, a semi-finalist in the self-published science fiction competition, the, the, the sci-fi sister, sister contest, uh, Hugh Howie's launched. So it, it's really made me being a judge for Spiffbo has, has, has really given me a great appreciation for, for the people who have to read my book uh, and judge it on its merits. So uh, thank you to all of you guys who are slogging through uh, uh, a humorous sci-fi comedy uh, amongst more possibly more brilliant, more hard-hitting sci-fi fare out there. <laughs> and how did you become a judge? What, what was that process like? Uh, so Beth Tabler, who, who runs uh, Before We Go blog, uh, but has had had me on, you know, for my occasional reviews. And then she put out a, she asked the, the group, I guess we have a Twitter chat, uh, who wants to be a judge for Spiffbo? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll do it. And then I realized how much work it was going to be. And I, I, I still went through it, um, through with it to my credit, but, uh, it was basically just saying who, uh, just saying yes. And, uh, I think, that's something I try to do a lot of in online or in terms of the self-publishing world. Say yes mm-hmm. to interviews, say yes to giveaways, say yes to, you know, writing reviews or being a judge. It, it, it's nice to be part of that community. And if people, you know, see me out there doing these other things and want to check out my books by reading my reviews, more power to them. And, Hopefully they'll, they'll like what I'm putting out. So, uh, 
how, how does that process work? So you're a judge, do you, do they hand you a pile of books or how does that, do you have a certain amount of time? How does that process work? Yeah, there's, there's a pile of books. I think we're in order, it's, it's quite a bit. And I think in order to lighten the load, uh, we've split up books amongst various judges. So while not everybody has to read all the finalists or semi-finalists, we, we portioned it out to, uh, to be a little more fair on everybody's time because I can tell you if I had to read all 10 finalists, I would not get done in time for the, 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 the final judging because a lot of these books, these fantasy books are real chonkers. So, yeah. uh, and I, I'm a pretty fast reader, but I'm not that fast. So, um, I think it's it's been helpful to not have to read all of them, although I do have all of them on my Kindle, so I will be reading them all at some point, you know, in my increasingly infinite TBR list, yeah. which I'm sure we all have. Yeah, so. it never, never gets smaller. It always gets yeah. bigger. And the so Kindle you... is kind of, and the e-readers, the Kindles, they're only like exacerbating the problem because not now, these books aren't really taking up space in in your in your house. So it's easy to forget about what you have to read or what you said you put on the list and just have it keep growing and growing and growing invisibly. So that's really nice. Yeah, it's it's nice because you can have any book within a few seconds, but it's also bad because you can have any book you want in a few yeah. seconds. Yeah. Human greed. It's great. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. And like you said, they're tiny files, so it's you can have a thousand books and... Never know it. It's just on your Kindle. It's just yeah. here hanging out. So, yeah. just waiting for you to turn turn the page. Just waiting the for you to the library. Free. Yeah, say I bought that book. I forgot about that. That's never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, in addition to being a judge and a writer, you're also uh, you have a, a bachelor's and master's degree in aerospace engineering. Yes. So tell us about yeah. that. Oh yeah. So. Uh, this is, yeah, so when I was talking earlier about my, you know, job back in 2007, uh, that was actually out in Seattle at Boeing. Uh, I was working on, you know, structural engineering for the, the 747, the jumbo jet, they're the last variant before they, they pretty much tanked the, the type completely. But yeah, so my educational background is, you know, aerospace engineering, uh, I went to Georgia Tech for a, a cool five years, raced through my bachelor's and master's program to, uh, uh, at the same time or, you know, one after the other. Um, I've always been a huge nerd and that if you haven't read my books, if you have read my books, that's very much apparent. But that nerdiness extends also to, you know, real science and actual things that aren't crazy multiverse comic booky concepts so, so it's, what... it's something i've always been interested in and something i always you know uh always follow closely so that leads us to the one of the questions that was posted on twitter from a friend and author noel zamat he wanted to know his question was since you're a rocket scientist can you explain specific impulse in terms a child or i would understand <laughs> yes yeah i, I saw that question yeah. oh I saw that question and I'm so far removed from the day-to-day -day of rocket science that uh, I probably can't, but uh, off the top of my head, I think it's basically, a, it's a measure of efficiency of a rocket engine of how much fuel it can burn to accelerate the whole system. But I can't explain it in a way that a child or even I would understand. I just gave you a quick soundbite from what, you know, I think it is. I, I always struggled with thermodynamics and specific impulse. That was not that was not my thing. I ended up being more of a structures guy rather than a propellant guy. Although structures people are weird too. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a, an ABCs of, of rocket engines uh, that I can I can I can give you. 
and I I will um I will have to commit harikiri over it and end my shame of claiming to be a rocket scientist and not knowing what not having a instinctual command of what uh, of uh, what specific impulses. So what is it that you enjoy about structural engineering? Oh, well, I think it was easier, honestly. <laughs> I think it was easier. It, it came more easily to me than a lot of the thermodynamics stuff. That stuff clouded my brain and was really, really tough. Along with a lot of the fluid dynamics, that any dynamics, really. Even structural dynamics wasn't so easy. But <laughs> structures, you know, seem to be, you know, they're, for lack of a better word, stable. If you, uh, um, hopefully stable at least. But um, yeah, I I always found that you know sort of a grounding. It was, it was aerospace. It was interesting and was also sort of, you know, the sort of building structural components that stuff that just fit, makes sense and feels right to me. I wish I had a better explanation, but it's more of just a feeling. Hmm. And it was kind of an architecture kind of feel, which I always liked. And I think it carries over into how I write as hmm. well, because I try to build like a plot and character scaffolding to hang all of these weird things that I come up with onto and just try and make everything tie out and make sense in the end and i think that you know that sort of engineering mindset really helped me uh in terms of writing my books and when you write your books do you add in any scientific easter eggs that only certain people would get i try i try there are some really really deep cuts where i do some research and i try to say okay none of this really makes sense but maybe I can put in something that kind of ties into real science just, just a little bit. And then I go, you know, off the rails with it. So there's, there's stuff in there that probably, you know, if you really, really look into it might make some sense, but I try to go as, as hands off with this science as possible. I've, there are other books I have in the works that are more traditional science fiction, less humor, less out there that I do try and, you know, work actual science into, but those have not seen the light of day and might not for a while. Hmm. I've got, I've got about three, four more books to write. So uh, in the Duck and Dyer series. So once that's done, uh, look out for the hard science. With the with the hard, harder science books, how much do you how much do you have to pull back and, and not to alienate people like me who don't know very little about about those topics? I try not to be super technical about it, and I try to use a light touch and keep it as high level as possible. But if you look into it, okay, this sort of makes sense. This you, you're not going to see formulas or equations or anything like that in my books but uh you can you can at least to the point where if you're scientifically literate you can say okay i can accept that yeah. whereas you know like when i see certain movies like i guess moonfall or armageddon uh where the science is clearly completely off the wall and it ruins my suspension of disbelief uh i i can't you know uh identify with the narrative i try to keep it to within the bullshit meter where <laughs> your suspension of disbelief is okay that's fair enough hmm. uh you mentioned armageddon being just you know very inaccurate. Are there any movies that you were impressed with the uh, accuracy of science, at least as much as you can be in like a big budget movie? And I, I think the, I think the engineer's constant answer to that one is, is uh, the Martian. Hmm. Andy Weir's the Martian because he literally did all of the math and he, he, he did the astrophysics. He did the, the, the orbital dynamics. He ran through all these numbers 
it's pretty it's pretty airtight there's some there's some minor fudge factors but like by and large that was pretty fantastic that gravity also had some fudge factors but generally pretty good hmm. interesting i haven't mentioned gravity in a while i haven't thought about that movie in a while oh okay <laughs> but yes gravity <laughs> yeah i always wonder about that like how how accurate these movies are if, you know how much they're just for sake of the story and how much the, how accurate the science is i mean i try not to be too unforgiving for me if the story is fun and i'm caught up in the story i i give them a pass if it doesn't make sense fine i'm having fun let's leave it but the moment i start to feel that the story doesn't quite make sense or the execution is not right okay then i go into nitpick mode and i'm like let me savage this this movie or this book as hard as possible because uh it 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 brings out a little a, a part of me that isn't quite nice and i don't like to admit <laughs> that i have <laughs> but um but if you if if you get me with the story you're good and in addition to all these other things that you do you're also an artist i wondered uh if you can tell us about your, your artistry oh i haven't i haven't been a real artist in a long time uh <laughs> I mean, I uh, by decades, I've, I've drawn a little bit here and there. I can sketch. I've, I've put some little funny little cartoons up on my website. But I haven't, I haven't done real art in, in quite a while. Um, I mentioned Duck and Dyer was supposed to be a webcomic. Mm -hmm. And once I found out how much work it would take for me to improve my artistry to the level of quality that I'd be comfortable producing a webcomic i immediately gave up and went the book route um but yeah no i haven't i haven't drawn in a while i usually doodle as a hobby but yeah my art isn't isn't something i've kept up with and it's something i regret but uh but you know maybe one day i'll get back to it i'm oh, yeah. never too old to start no, of course not. And uh, I did read that you you were part of a sketch group, and I wondered what the sketch what what is a sketch group? Yeah, you're you're making it sound like I do too many things, and you're correct. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was also part of a sketch comedy group here in New York uh, City, a uh, pre-COVID, of course, because post-COVID uh, live events have have been increasingly not a thing. Yeah. But um, every month, uh, me and a group of comedians from the New York comedy scene would sort of get together pitch sketches to each other write out little three or four minute beats um and then put on a show uh at the end of every month uh with all new material every month for for the entire year and i think i did that for about three four years and it was a lot of fun it's a lot of work and it's a it takes a lot of time and the older and older I get, the less and less time I have. So I've moved away from sketch comedy, and I do have a lot. Um, I have a lot of love for it, but I don't have the time anymore <laughs> if I'm going to do, you know, my my regular day job, writing these books, as well as balancing all the normal day to day stuff for, you know, my social life and my sanity. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I had to go, but I I, I loved every minute of everything i did and everything i wrote and i think i put up some of the scripts on my website of of a few sketches that i was particularly proud of but and if you dig if you dig in the it on the internet somewhere you might find some of the some of the videos of of, of a lot of our sketches but you know i'm not gonna not gonna plug that here just now challenge accepted yeah go for it yeah. Go for it, everybody. Find the content. Find the content. Find the content. The internet never forgets. Oh, yeah. No, of course not. Nor so, should it. No. And another thing you, another thing that, that uh, I've noticed you did is you've written for the History Channel's Join or Die by Craig Ferguson. And what was that experience like? Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that was also during my sketch comedy days. Uh, uh, one of my friends who... A friend of mine from high school worked for A and E, and 
Craig Ferguson had just uh, left, I guess, his his late night position and was doing kind of a short series for the History Channel about uh, about just sort of a roundtable panel about certain historical topics, and they were looking for like a little uh, animated end tag to to every show. And my friend reached out to me and said, "Hey, you write like three to four minute short comedy pieces. We're doing this." thing for craig ferguson i was like craig ferguson all right i'm in what do i have to write so uh, it it was very similar to like writing sketch comedy but just making sure things were historically accurate to whatever the individual topic was i believe there were some george washington andrew jackson presidential topics other stuff like that and just kind of playing up some of the crazier parts of their lives or or history in general so that was a lot of fun i did a some of it came from research some of it came from things that i remembered were true from my history classes but it was a lot of fun to write and see my words actually taken and animated by a professional animator that all that content can also be found on the internet somewhere but now you have the title join our die so you could probably search them up yeah and uh, so I was wondering too, if you, uh, it's always very interesting to me how different authors, uh, whether they like to listen to music or don't like to listen to music when they're writing, do you enjoy listening to music when you write? I don't listen to music when I write. Um, I like music. I like a lot of music and you can find a lot of music DNA in the, uh, in my books. Some of the chapter titles are a lot of eighties hits, which mm. is pretty much exclusively what I listen to. Um, and, I, but I don't like it during the process of writing because I want to be free to just concentrate on all the weird ideas I'm thinking about and not necessarily having to listen to something while I do it. But I think a lot of my brainstorming, uh, whether I'm just walking down the street or at the gym, well, not lately, admittedly, but uh, if I'm on my commute and listening to music, that stuff is is brain fuel for like ideas and maybe not even just basically from the lyrics or anything, but the mood the music generates. It comes, it helps me come up with certain scenes, and I I have soundtracks in my head for every like chapter or what I imagine would be playing in the background during pivotal scenes and. It helps me frame how exactly I want things to go. And I guess the timing to circle back to, to everything else, the timing and the pacing, I sometimes I put it to, to a specific song and it's really helpful. Hmm. Just not when I'm actually writing. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about, what is it about the eighties that you enjoy? In uh, oh, I don't know. It was just such a great decade for pop culture. And there was so, so many, like, so much content. I mean, it, we have more content now than we've, we've ever had. But the, the stuff that was pumped out in the 80s had just this fun, carefree feel to it that sometimes just said, hey, get on board, enjoy the ride, have a little fun, nothing, try not to think about all the terrible stuff and just ha join this adventure. Stuff like the Goonies or Big Trouble in Little China, Indiana Jones, a lot of the Star Wars. Just it's it was just so colorful and fun and vibrant. And although I wasn't alive for most of the eighties, it's the <laughs> decade I most identify with. Sure. What are your thoughts on a lot of the nostalgia now with a lot of these remakes or reboots or movies that reference that time period? <sighs> Nostalgia is a hell of a drug. Yeah. Uh, it's and it's been. I like to call this, you know, the the current cycle that we're in, weaponized nostalgia, because it is it is hard and fast, and it comes from every sort of angle: movies, TV, books, music. Um, and I don't. And the the scary thing is sometimes I don't mind it. I'm like. I like it. I like going back and revisiting all these old properties and 
if they're done right. If they're not, then, you know, it's upsetting. But I, I like seeing all these things. Everything old is new again. Uh, I, I, I like that feeling, but I see how it's increasingly becoming more and more and more of a cash grab, which mm. takes a lot of the soul out of it. And that's, that's what I want to see when I see these more nostalgic films that are trying to rehash old, old properties. If, if they're sold to it, I can, I can get behind it. If it's clearly just a, an attempt to capitalize on people's feelings, then maybe not so much. It's a line there that's tough to not cross. It is before. It is very tough, especially if you're working for a Hollywood studio or someone who has monetized all of this nostalgia and is looking for a big return. Yeah. <laughs> is, there any, or is there any properties that you've particularly enjoyed that that was pumping that nostalgia in your veins? I think the... I mean, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And the, they've... They've had some hits and misses in the past couple of years, and Star Wars fans are notoriously touchy about Star Wars. And you can tell a tell a good Star Wars fan by how much he or she hates Star Wars. So I'm not going to touch that with a ten foot pole right now. But I think the one uh, like reboot or reimagining or re sequel that I really enjoyed. Uh, this, these past couple of years was the Bill and Ted, Bill and Ted three, mm. Bill and Ted face the music. Cause I, I mean, when I was growing up, I watched, you know, I loved the Bill and Ted movies. And again, if you, you can see that clearly in my books, uh, two weird slackers who have to slide through universes and jump from point to point to point. If you can't see Bill and Ted and duck and dire, you might you might need to rewatch Bill and Ted, but um, the Bill and Ted third this this third sequel it was really nice. I really did enjoy it. It was a good time, and it was it was very soulful, and there was a lot of thought put into it. Hmm. And they brought back uh, Death, who was my favorite character from the second one. <laughs> Were there are there any comedies that uh, that you've that have inspired you through the years that you you think of that kind of uh, kind of formed or um, inspired you or to kind of get your style of comedy? So uh, quite a bit, actually. So my comedy is very much informed on a base level by The Simpsons. Hmm. That is that is my base level of comedy. Seasons three through nine, maybe eleven of The Simpsons are my peak comedy. And then it was further just sort of augmented into the surreal by constantly watching Conan O'Brien's late night show, the way he was just sort of fearless and going for like really out there concepts that normal people might not find so funny. It That, that stuff really stuck with me and I try and take that blend of Americanized 90s, early 2000s comedy and marry it with, like, Douglas Adams, who is the one person you think of when you think comedy sci-fi. Oh, it's Douglas Adams, because literally no one else has written com comedic sci-fi. But, um, but there are other people who've written comedic sci-fi, but Douglas Adams is sort of the genesis in it. I'm sure if you talk to anyone else who's written, you know, sci-fi comedies, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Dirk Gently, all of that stuff has almost certainly seeped into their work in some way or form. So I try to take my Americanized upbringing, merge it with the weird, uh, sarcastic, witty Britishisms of Douglas Adams and pump out something that's you know, a weird amalgam of the two that sits in some world of its own. And uh, I wondered, what, what's the best life advice you've ever been given? Life advice? Uh, fake it till you make it. <laughs> fake it till you, you make it has never steered me wrong. 
<laughs> because uh, growing up, I was a very like uh, not co- I was not a confident individual. I was a nerd. I was I was a geek. I was a dork. I was all of those things and and then some. And someone like in high school told me just fake it till you make it, and that was the easiest confidence boost I've ever gotten. So if anything, I would tell absolutely everybody to fake it until they make it. Because I think everybody on some level already is, even if they don't know it. <laughs> I hope so. I really hope so. Otherwise, I've been doing this all wrong. <laughs> You're doing pretty well for yourself, I would say. I don't know. I think yeah, I'm all right. I'm yeah. doing okay. <laughs> Uh, was there ever a hobby or a thing that you were excited to try, but when you tried it, you did not enjoy it? Oh, that's tough. Um, hobby that I didn't enjoy. I mean, I did try sports for a while in the eighth grade, and that was a massive failure. I tried to be on the basketball team. That was that was not good. That was a <laughs> that was a unmitigated disaster so i think that's what happens to me um that that was before fake it till till you make it entered (laughs) my life so i couldn't fake it and i just kind of like all right i completely failed i should never do this again and uh i think i i subconsciously do that to a lot of you know other things in my life they're like well if at first you don't succeed Give up entirely and go do something else. What was it about basketball that you just didn't enjoy? Oh, I uh, I have the, I mean, my upper body strength and core strength and running speed and everything is the same now as it was when I was in the eighth grade. So not, it was not, it was not a fun experience uh, being uh, the least capable member of the team. It was nice to be able to sit for about 90 or so minutes on a bench uh, and watch other people play basketball. So I guess it wasn't all bad, but I, boy, you know, sports, it's not my thing. It's not. <laughs> so uh, I have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Uh, one of them right. is uh, I recently talked to author Halo Scott. And uh, we talk, discussed jelly beans, and Halo likes to take just a fistful of jelly beans and throw them, you know, eat them all at once. But I'm a, in the camp of you should take the jelly beans and pick, put them into piles and then eat them flavor by flavor. So do you eat all the jelly beans at once, or do you separate them into flavors? I don't eat all the jelly beans at once. I don't separate them into flavors either. Mm. I take them as they come. So I'm like, okay, there's a green one. I'll eat a green one. I'll eat the. I don't quite mix them up, but I just take things as they come. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's the answer you wanted to hear. No, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to make sure I'm not insane for for separating them. Cause... No, no, I, I don't think you are. I think there's there's a logic to that that I can respect. Um, I'm too lazy. I I guess this comes back to I'm too lazy to pick everything apart, put them in a piles, and then go pile by pile. I'm also too neurotic to take everything and shove it in my mouth all at once, but I'm just the right balance of lazy and neurotic to just go one by one and not try not to care if a pink comes after a green or a brown or whatever colors they make jelly beans these days. No, don't like the licorice ones, though. Hmm. No black jelly beans. Those I'll oh, take out. I like the black ones. So I'm sorry. Ones. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I know me too. That's, that's okay. This is, my, this is the biggest scandal of my lifetime, is the, uh, <laughs> the I don't like black jelly beans. Yeah. All those black jelly bean lovers are going to come for you. So oh, I'm sure they will. I mean, you put this on Twitter, and I'm going uh, to get crucified. Yeah, those those licorice licorice fans are going to come after you. Yeah, those those stands they're 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 intense. I'm yeah. surprised you're not you know trying to choke me through the screen right now. Uh, I, if I could, I would. But, okay, you know, good. No, okay, right. you yeah. show remarkable restraint. <laughs> I, you have, I have to 
keep up keep up for appearances. Good, good. So the uh, the next question was: If the zombie apocalypse happened today, what would be your weapon of choice? So are we. Um, I've thought about this. This is something I've thought about a lot. So are we including fictional weapons, or are we talking regular weapons? Anything you want. You can be oh. fictional or reality. So if you're going with, you know, uh, fictional weapons, to me, the only one that ever made sense was the lightsaber. Because mm -hmm. it's really easy to chop someone's head off. And that's really what you got to do if you're facing, you know, a bunch of zombies. So separate the head from the neck and you're good. And I think the lightsaber is a really great tool for that kind of, that kind of offensive. Hmm. What that is a great answer. <laughs> I mean, what, what would you use? Uh, I would have said something like a spear before, but now I'm in the lightsaber camp. How can you not have that? The spear is, is good for range. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. That, that's the one drawback of the lightsaber is that you don't have the range and you probably want the range when if you're dealing with more than one zombie yeah so but if you're only limited to one weapon i would go lightsaber do they run on batteries would you have to worry about the battery is or how are they charged i don't think they run on batteries i think mm -hmm. there was like some concept art where like old jedi had to wear like uh like a battery pack and plug in the lightsaber and and use it um, thousands of years before like the regular Star Wars movies. But now it seems like as long as they don't get wet, they're fine. Hmm. So when they get wet, they're not fine. I think I think there was like a deleted scene where Obi Wan Kenobi was swimming through somewhere and he tried to turn on his lightsaber and short it out. So. Hmm. But then I've also seen some scenes where people are using lightsabers underwater, so I don't know what to believe. Yeah, that's Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars, you know, it, it plays fast and loose with itself sometimes, and that's yeah. what some people love about it, and that's what Star Wars fans also hate about it. Yeah, you can't please them all, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so the next question is, do you have a favorite family recipe? Oh, that's a that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that before. I'm not a big cook. Uh, but my mom made, makes a lot of, I grew up eating a lot of Indian food and my mom, it's hard. It's hard because when I go out with friends and they say, Hey, how about we go get some Indian food? I'm like, absolutely not. Why should I go to a restaurant and pay for something that I'm getting homemade for free of, of you know, down-home quality versus restaurant quality? But I think something I really like of my mom's is her dosha, which is basically just sort of very thin rice pancake. Super simple to make if you make, you just have to ferment the batter, which is, you know... Uh, which takes a little bit of time, but it's quick. Just sort of fry it up, eat it with butter or some sort of curry. It's very simple and it's just a quick, easy breakfast food. So I'd say that would be my favorite family recipe, even though I don't really fully understand how to make it myself. <laughs> I Sometimes really need to ask her for a book or to write these things down because uh, that is that is something I will miss when the inevitable happens. I just I just brought up some stuff. Sorry. <laughs> I think Time sometimes, yeah, I think sometimes the best recipes are the ones you have no idea how to make because it's like a mystery that just appears and it's I it's think, less money you can make it. Yeah, I I make a lot of burgers uh in the summertime. I and my friends really like what I do. Uh I put a bunch of stuff, a bunch of spices, I I soak them in beer. Mm -hmm. Uh and before I grill them and uh, my friends really like them. They love them. They always ask for the recipe. And I'm like, the secret ingredient is love because I have no idea what the actual ingredients are. I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of this. There's a little bit of this. This is some powder and there's beer. Beer made it good. As it usually does. 
So the next one was, uh, what was your first job? So my first job uh, was the one at Boeing, actually. That was my first actual job. Um, interning at Boeing, I had like, I spent two two summers and a little bit more interning in Seattle, working on the structural components for the for the 747-8. And then one summer, I actually came back closer to home in New Jersey, and I worked at McGuire Air Force Base out mm -hmm. near Trenton, and I did sort of technical support for their C-17 fleet, which was also pretty interesting. So that those were my first real jobs. I, I'm, I feel very privileged that I never had like a, a blue-collar job, and I feel honestly like I'm missing a certain life experience um, not only having a blue collar job, but also dealing with customers. Cause I know that is a harrowing, harrowing experience that, uh, destroys your faith in humanity, uh, <laughs> most of the time. And I feel like part of my happy go lucky attitude is due to the fact that I've never had to do that. And I know that I am incredibly lucky for, for, for the opportunities that I've been given that. I never had to do that, but there is some part of the human experience that is missing from me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You can always go get a job somewhere and deal with the general public just for kicks. No, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> so the last question, the one that I like to ask all of my guests, okay. is if the roles were reversed and you were in my position, was there a question that you would have asked that I did not ask? Oh man, that is a question. Uh, Cause wow, that is a question at my current job. I do a lot of uh, interviews for, for uh, employees we're going to hire on. And that is the last question I ask all of them because I'm like, okay, maybe I can use this as reference uh, <laughs> for, for, for the next time. Oh, so what is a question I would have liked you to ask me? Ooh, see, on the other side of this, this is this is this is less fun. Uh, I should stop doing this. Um, now I know how they feel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I guess the one question Oh, okay. I have a good one, but I assume okay. that once I ask you what the question what I once I tell you what the question is, you're going to ask me that question. Yes. <laughs> okay. Logically. So now I have to think about my answer to that question. Uh Or you can just tell me the question and you can just answer spontaneously. I guess, but this this is this is I this is not something I can answer spontaneously because I need to remember um uh, I, I need to remember what the answer is because That's once true. you hear the question you'll you'll know why. You know what I'll just tell you the question. Uh okay. what's your favorite joke? Okay, what is your favorite joke? What is my favorite joke? I don't know. Oh this is hard. Uh What's the first one that comes to your mind? There, there is one that I really like, and I need to. It's, it's either a, it's either a, one of those walks into a bar jokes, or it's a knock knock joke. Um, oh yeah, here's a good one. I have a great knock knock joke, but you, uh, but you're going to have to start it. Knock knock. Who's there? I am <laughs> just literally putting you on the spot and realizing, I think that it's now your joke is probably my favorite thing of all time. I like that. I'm going to use that. In a comfortable you situation. Feel free to use it. It's, yeah. it's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff I like. It's something that knocks people off balance, even if they're familiar with jokes and comedy. But uh, so feel free to knock as many people off balance as you can with that. Yes. Good icebreaker for sure. Yeah. It's a good one. 
Yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. Uh, so, <laughs> you, you got me with that question. <laughs> <laughs> you turn the tables on me. Uh, so, if uh, someone wants to connect with you, where's the best place to uh, find you? So you can usually find me trolling Twitter. Uh, I'm always, you know, checking that and trying to come up with witty one-liners to post. So that's, you can find me at Ganesh Nair. That's G-A-N-E-S-H-N-A-I-R. Or you can find a bunch of stuff on my website, which is uh, ds-df.com. So there's my books. There's some of my sketches some blog posts. There's even a section where I, a couple of people were asking me scientific questions about superheroes and science fiction, and I decided to actually go ahead and try and solve their, solve their questions with math and science. So that was a lot of fun to do, and that's up there as well. So there's a lot of free content down there. So go go get that content, get yeah, that content. And you can also be found on Before We Go Blog. Yes. With your reviews and uh, yeah, so go check yes. that. I'll leave all those links in the description on the podcast or on YouTube. So be sure and check those out and uh, find your books and check them out. That would be great. So I know you're you're very busy. You have a lot. You have I, a lot of stuff I don't know how I function day to day with all the things that I have to do, but I I do. Uh, I think it's mostly because of the faking it. Mm. Uh, maybe i don't actually have a lot to do and i'm just faking it i've never really thought about that (laughs) it maybe it just makes me look like a more important person because i'm hypothetically busy all the time i bet people leave you alone more often than than not yeah i love that love that yeah it's like i'm I'm way too busy for that i can't make it yeah it's the uh, the George Costanza school of, of avoiding things. It's just yeah. look upset and angry at all times, and people will not talk to you. Very good. Yeah. It was a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you again for coming by and for uh, accepting the invite. It's, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you again sometime when you when you uh, want to come back. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. So I will talk to you soon. All right. Take care.